Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over half a million times in over 145 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. In today's episode, episode 190, we talk about In the Footsteps of the Cannibal Convict. This episode is one of the most interesting interviews we've done since we started Australian Hiker, and it was one that um, just caught my attention. I think it's a it's it's something that's fairly unique, uh, and really brings to uh, to light the concept of choosing your own adventure. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. In 1820, Irish thief Alexander Pierce was sent to Van Diemen's Land, now known as Tasmania, to serve a seven-year sentence for stealing shoes. And if the story ended here, it wouldn't be particularly noteworthy. Where it becomes interesting is in 1822, where Pierce and seven other convicts escaped from their penal colony in western Tasmania and made their way eastwards across some of the most rugged and inhospitable terrain in a break for freedom. Starvation pressed the party into a series of grim decisions, resulting in cannibalism, and Pierce being the sole survivor of the group. Pierce was eventually recaptured, but escaped again less than a year later with another convict who also fell afoul of Pierce's predilection for eating his compatriots. In 2008, six hikers walked for 23 days, covering the 170-kilometre journey from Coalhead in Macquarie Harbour to Ouse, retracing the 1822 footsteps of Alexander Pierce across what is now the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers National Park. In today's episode, we catch up with one of those hikers, Paul Lefebvre, to find out about his unique journey and why he and his friends chose to undertake this trip. Paul, thank you for taking your time to talk with Australian Hiker. Uh, thank you for having me on to talk and, and for your interest in this story of Mr Alexander Pierce and our team's expedition. Okay, now let's just start off. This trip would have been a struggle with modern gear, let alone doing it in the early 1800s. Before we get to the nuts and bolts of this trip, give us a bit of background about both yours and your group's hiking resume prior to this trip. Well, six members in our team, and um, we were all very much outdoors people prior to meeting one another, and we were all doing our own bushwalking activities. We later met when we were all volunteers, volunteer members in the Tasmanian SES, and that was in particular by being in the search and rescue team. I suppose typical bushwalking activities that we were all doing were very varied. We've got a very, very varied opportunity in Tasmania. We would have been doing national parks on tracks. We'd, we would, were doing a lot of off-track walking in remote areas. Uh, we're doing coastal walks, winter snow camps, mountain climbing, orienteering and rogaining. And apart from our own personal walking experience, we all gained further skills after joining the SS, such as uh, leadership, team management, survival, remote area first aid, patient care, just to name a few things. I think 
going any further. I should acknowledge the other members of our team because this was a thing that relied so heavily on team cohesion. So the other members were Sue, Cynthia, Maureen, Simon and Jason. So that was a that was a team of six all up, was it? Uh, six or five? That no, it was six. Yeah, six it was. And I suppose that that sort of prompts a question through here. Then, how did you decide as to be a group of six? Was this all something that you all had interest in, or you you or somebody else sort of got together and said who who would be interested in this sort of trip? Yeah, the, the very first interest came from Simon. He was the one that. At, at a, a meeting we had, he just said, have you guys heard of the Alexander Pierce story? And um, most of us had, and he he was the first one that put his hand up and said, hey, why don't we look at doing this? It's never been done. All right. Now, that sort of leads us into the, the next obvious question. This hike really can be described as unique, and certainly in, in previous episode, we've talked about uh, the concept of choosing your own adventure. What made you and your friends interested in Alexander Pierce's story and why did you want to recreate this trip? The history and the challenge of doing something that had never been done really got our attention after we first talked about it. So it was, it was a combination of both of those things, really. But after thinking about Alexander Pierce, we, we wanted to highlight the great physical and men, mental feat that those convicts achieved. And we, but we wanted to experience that firsthand because we wanted to be in a position of being able to speak from that real experience and facts of what Pierce and his party achieved and what they may have encountered along the way. So from from the perspective of doing this hike, it was uh, as much about the history as about doing a unique sort of journey? Yeah, it was, that's what I'm saying. Um, it was a combination of both those things that really grabbed our interest and and we just kept pushing forward with, with our plans and it developed, Yeah. From from looking at this sort of trip through here, you know, really you're you're going from the Tasmanian west coast almost into the centre of Tasmania. I'll, I'll say roughly in a straight line. I'm sure it wasn't wasn't that the way it worked out, but you know, you're you're heading from the coast inland. What sort of level of planning was involved in this sort of trip? It probably spread for about eight months, and we were researching whatever we could get our hands on. So, in the Tasmanian archives. Uh, two recorded interviews that were conducted after Pierce was captured the second time. And he was interviewed by his Catholic priest and he was also interviewed by the authorities at, at Port Arthur. And those interviews are held, in, as I said, in the Tasmanian Archive Office. One's written in English and the other one is in Gaelic. So our planning, you know, uh, a lot of information from those we also studied lots of maps. We studied topographic maps, aerial photography, weather charts, river height data. So the other thing was we realised that we we needed to get some experience of walking together as a group. So we, we, we chose two other major walks in preparation. First of all, we did a 26-day trip from uh, Bathurst Harbour, Port Davie, right down in southwest Tasmania up to Hell's Gates at the entrance of Macquarie Harbour, Strawn. So, yeah, that was 26 days. And then after that, we did a 12-day trip around the shoreline of Flinders Island. So in that eight months, we had lots and lots of meetings to discuss things like food preparation, tents, clothing, safety, equipment, all that stuff, maps, strategy for river crossings because that was a major thing. And we also thought about how would we respond 
should there be a serious injury, you know, those types of things. So, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of planning. Now, in relation to that, this this walk was, I think, I believe 2008, I think you did this walk, was it? Uh, 2009. 2009. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, yeah, 2008. What, uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about strategies for what if things went wrong. Um, uh, were there personal locator beacons or satellite phones in those days or was it a bit more old school? Oh, no, um, certainly we carried a PLB. Yep. Um, we carried a satellite phone. We carried um, – well, to get out of a real emergency and, and to get help, they were the two items. But there was so much other safety gear too, like we had um, harnesses, ropes, carabiners, all that type of thing because there's a nasty river right when, when I say nasty, it's a beautiful river, the Franklin River. We had to get across the Franklin River, and that's not an easy task. So safety was our number one priority every day and looking after each other. Because if you get into trouble where we were, you are so remote, and you could be you could be on the side of a, a mountain, you could be down in a huge ravine, and for uh, rescue people to get in there and get you would not be easy. So safety was our number one priority. Uh, I suppose that raises that raises the question here. I mean, you know, you, you're you're entitled to pretty much do what you like and go wherever you like. What were the uh, the views of the park services and the the government when you? When you told people that you were going to be doing this trip, was there there any backlash to say, "Look, yeah, you're, you're you're crazy. You shouldn't be doing this," or uh, was it just that yeah, you've got enough experience and you know it's like you're, you're doing all the planning? We're happy happy for you to go. Well, we didn't we didn't converse with the authorities. Uh, so, in other words, we didn't talk to Parks and Recreation, uh, Parks and Wildlife Services, but other people that we did have to talk to reckon we were crazy. <laughs> They even said we wouldn't come out alive, and that was pretty disheartening and it set us back on our heels a bit, made us think more deeply about it. For example, we had to hire a boat from Strawn to take us down to Sarah Island. We wanted to go to Sarah Island because that's where Pierce was working from. We wanted to go into Farmhouse Bay, I think it is, uh, because they went in there logging, and we also had to get dropped off at Coal Head in Macquarie Harbour where we started our walk because that's where Pierce overcame his guard and, and uh, started walking. Now, you, you, you've you've given a good indication. So you know where Pierce started from. You know where he was uh, Yeah, he was doing the logging work, which was part of his, his convict work. Did you have – how did you actually work out where Pierce actually – Travelled from you know we know a starting point we know a finishing point on this trip, but how did you work out where he actually went through, or was it just a, a close approximation? No, no, it was very detailed, and we wanted to do it as accurately as we possibly could, and that all came. The information for that came from the interviews before he was executed. So what Pierce and his party did. Because they'd previously worked as, um, you know, away from Port Arthur and allocated to farmers or shepherds, yeah, and they were doing shepherding work for farm landholders. So during that time that they were out working for the landowners, those convicts knew that there was a strip of settled land uh, running north-south in Tasmania from Hobart Town to Port Dalrymple, which Port Dalrymple was the first set settlement up here in the north of the state. Um, just north of Launceston in, in the Tamey Estuary. 
they knew that if they went due, they knew they were on the west coast of Tasmania, so they knew if they went due east, they would eventually hope to hit some set, a strip of settled land. But the thing is, when they overcame the guard, they never had any intention of going inland because prisoners at, at Sarah Island had been told that, or it was commonly known amongst them all, that to go inland you'd either be killed by the Aboriginal people or you would just disappear into the wilderness and never come out and die. So their plan wasn't to go overland. Their plan was to capture the boat from the guard, the boat that they'd tow the logs back to Sarah Island every night. Their, their plan was to, over, to overcome the guard, grab that boat and sail out through Hell's Gates and head north to China. That was their original plan. But when they overcame the guard and they started rowing in the boat, but they noticed then that there were smoke signals coming up along the shore and they realised that that was to alert the guards at Hell's Gates that something was wrong. And Hell's Gates is a very, very narrow inlet into Macquarie Harbour and they knew they wouldn't get through. So they abandoned that and took, took to land. So they knew they had to go east to that strip of land. And one of the party members was a convict called Greenhill. And in, um, in England, he had worked in the maritime industry and he could navigate. So what they did, they headed due east and they went from mountain to mountain. Their idea of that was to uh, get to the top of the mountain, have that good view ahead in an easterly direction to the next mountain top, and they'd sort of plan what they could see in between those mountains as they went and forge their way. So that's recorded. So we did the same thing. We wanted to be accurate as possible. For example, Pierce spoke of a, from being on a high mountain, he spoke of looking down on a vast valley about 11 miles wide by three miles wide, uh, sorry, 11 miles long by three miles wide. You can pinpoint that because that had to be what, what the valley where um, uh, Lake King William now is. Obviously, when they went through in 1822, Hydro weren't building lakes. Um, so, so from this information in, in the recorded interview, the historians have pieced together from that info a very narrow strip of where they went. So we follow that narrow strip. And they believe that, that you know, you can narrow it down to probably a, a, a two-kilometre strip wide where they've gone. So that's what we wanted to do. Um, we didn't deviate much between mountain and mountain at all. We even arranged passage over the lakes by boat because um, we weren't going to walk right up to the northern end of this huge valley or the southern end because that's not where they went. They went through in this narrow strip. So that's what we did. We went by boat. Okay. So, yeah, it's it, it sounds like a, a logistical, uh, a mammoth logistical uh, exercise from your perspective, you know, not, 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 not justice doing the uh, – the pre-hiking, which was you know, it's a it's a lot of pre-hiking that you guys did to to prepare for this, but just the logistics of of uh, organising boats and uh, and working out where the route was. So, how much time did you spend overall? Did you think uh, in, in the planning phase of this this trip? Oh well, um, as I said, it was it, it was spread out over about eight months from the time that we first said, "Hey, are we." up to this, are we going to do this, until the time we went was about eight months. So in that time, there was lots of planning, yeah. 
just in looking at the articles in Australian Geographic and seeing what's available, you seem to be carrying reasonably heavy packs, uh, roughly around about the 25 kilo mark. Um, I'm guessing that's because you were in a remote area and you really, really couldn't rely on on resupplies um, you know, on, a, on a every two or three days sort of thing. Is that, is that the reason for, for the heavy packs? Um, I think the reason for our packs was um, we had to prepare, prepare for some of the harshest and totally unforgiving environment in Tasmania, Southwest. So we needed to be sufficiently laden with every requirement, uh, you know, that that would hopefully enable us to be successful. It was such an undertaking. Yeah, look, our packs were heavy. They ranged from, would you believe, 35 kilos to 25. Um, the There was only one pack that was 35, and that was Simon's. Um, but he carried a lot of uh, recording equipment, um, video cameras, that sort of thing. So he, he actually had a couple of different cameras, quite expensive cameras. We didn't... This is not an undertaking that you can try and go ultralight. It was about a function of time because, you know, we had to anticipate the duration of this expedition. There was no guides, no references to assistance. So, you know, how much food do you take? And you mentioned um, resupply. We did have a resupply strategy, but certainly not, you know, every few days because there's no way you could... We weren't going to do it twice. In other words, we weren't going to go in there and put food in every couple of days and walk it again. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't on the cards. Um, so we we also had an emergency contingency plan, and it, this was our plan that we would carry ten days food, and we anticipated that we would reach reach a halfway mark uh, somewhere at a location on the Lyle Highway in ten days' time, and that there our our support group would meet us and then supply, resupplies for another 10 days. That was a good thought, but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> anyway, our, emerg- our, um, our emergency contingency plan was that we left a five-day supply with an a- aviation operator. And as it turned out, we were so lucky we did. So what happened was on day eight, we had only reached the engineer range. So we, at that point, we got two days food left. And I recall sitting up there on that, that uh, range and. We, we thought we talked, we've got two days' food, and we think it's going to take us another four to six days to reach that uh, point on the lower highway where our support group was. So we called, we used the satellite phone at that point and called for our emergency supplies. So uh, again, it didn't work out well. And this just highlights how difficult it was to, you know, try and calculate a time frame of how long it's going to take us. So with our original 10 day supplies, which was now down to two, plus the five days emergency, 15 days, we still hadn't reached our support group by day 15. And it was on day 16 that we walked without any food out to the Lyle Highway. We, had, we didn't have any food left that day. So we thought 10 days, we had 15 days food and we still didn't make it. It was that tough. Nope. In, actual, in actual fact, on that day 16 when we walked out, uh, we went to bed the night before on day 15, knowing we had no food left. Um, but we knew that we could get to the Lyle Highway that next day. We knew we could do it. Anyway, one of it, one of our team members collapsed during that day on the way out. That's that's the state we were in. Yeah, I was, um, was going to say, the whole trip was roughly about 170 kilometres and it took you about 23 days. 
Yeah, um, yeah. So it sounded right. it sounded like that that first half of the or sorry that that first section of the trip was probably the hardest, or at least at least it appeared that way. You know, fifteen days to to get to the point where you thought you'd only take ten. So that's right. Um, and we were in a terrible state at that time. So as, aside from running out of food that, that by one day, we had just endured ten consecutive days of torrential southwest rain. And anyone who's and anyone who's been in the southwest Tasmania will understand uh, how that would affect you. But the the rain is so constant, it doesn't give up. And and so about twenty three days, seventeen days were wet, cold, some snow. So 17 days out of the 23. We only had six days where it was fine weather and there was some sunshine. But again, of those 17 days, 10 were consecutive, consecutive, day, night, day, night, day, night for 10 days. And this is when we run out of food. So, you know, it's probably a lucky thing that more of us didn't collapse on that last day walking out. It's a bit of a luck of the draw with Tasmania, isn't it? You, we we did the overland track in 2017, and I think we had a couple of hours of, of rain, and the rest of the trip was fine. But we were, we were coming fully prepared for having the entire trip rainy, and that's just just luck of the draw with some of the more remote areas in Tasmania. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know, understanding uh, we're in the we're, we're bush bashing. That's all we're doing in, in this first half. All right. Well, that brings us on to the trail itself. You, you know, you were you were meeting at roads in various places, but were there any trails, or was the bulk of the the, the actual track or the, the the trip itself bush bashing? Our walk could be um, um, divided into fairly two different sections. So the first section from Coalhead in Macquarie Harbour to Mount King William is what we'd call true southwest the first half of our walk up until Mount King on day 17. And it was all bush bashing, totally bush bashing. No trails, no roads, nothing. The vegetation there is basically impenetrable. Um, amongst other species, you've got things like tea tree, bower, uh, melaleuca, hakea, cutting grass, horizontal, the, the dreaded horizontal, and, and vines that you, they strangle you trying to get through them. It, it was terrible. Whereas... Beyond Mount King William, the southwest gives way to what we call the Central Highlands, and in that area there are well there were a few tracks, not many, and some trails, but the vegetation was less dense. Uh, we we made better time. We covered more ground each day in that second half. In that first half, um, so so understanding that we were travelling from west to east, and the mountain ranges lie north to south, so we were continually up, down, up, down, up, down. Climbing, well, we were climbing to elevations of 1,300 metres, 900, 800, 700, each mountain range, and then down into a, a valley dissected by a lake or a river. And, of course, the most famous of those rivers being the mighty Franklin River. Yeah, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's where it was, and we knew, we knew that. In your 2009 National Geographic article, uh, you talk about a 12-hour day where you only covered a few kilometres. And your article, your article does describe the arduous train you needed to traverse. Give us a bit more information about that particular day or days, and was it a bit bit soul destroying? <laughs> um, it, it, it's certainly plural. Um, days is the right word, and there was a number of days when we only travelled that sort of distance. 
every day was extremely hard. But the the one that is most memorable in terms of distance travelled, apart from, you know, as I said, several days where we only went three to five kilometres or something like that, there was one day when we progressed only 1,100 metres, 1.1 kilometres during a 10-hour day. And this was the day when we climbed out of the Franklin River and we were in the area just at the um, beginning of the great, what's called the Great Ravine on the Franklin River, and it was extremely dangerous. We, the reason we only covered that distance, we were climbing up cliff after cliff after cliff, and we're coming from the river up to about 1,200 metres, I think. We were in the cliffs. This is also part of those 17 days. It was raining. It was no visibility. And many of those cliffs were impassable, and so that, that required us to shuffle along extremely narrow ledges to get to a cliff that we could get up. And when we're on these cliffs and ledges, if we look down between our feet, we were looking almost vertically down to the river directly below us. It was so scary. So, yes, that was soul-destroying. It was mentally debilitating. It was so physically destroying. And let's be honest, there were moments of tears. There was times of not even wanting to press on through that arduous terrain. And, and there was times when we discussed, should we press the button on the PLB? Um, we were dis- discussing pulling out at the resupply half market times when feelings were, and feelings were vented. We, you got to let these things out, but we, we stuck together as a team. And I, I recall at one stage it was mentioned, should we turn back? And, and the reply was, well, it can't be any more difficult ahead, so let's keep going. <laughs> oh, my goodness, if only we'd known. I must admit, you know, if you're in that sort of situation, as you're saying, it's pretty pretty precarious. Turning around, is it any better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, you know, we had very low points, but we we cared for each other so much. We looked after each other so well. I guess from being in the SES and working as a team, when you're searching for people that are lost and missing and overdue and all that sort of thing, you you learn to look after each other in a team. And that's what we had to do to survive. We we had to, yeah. All right. So as arduous as it was, I can imagine that the landscape in the area you were walking through would have just been amazing. But did you appreciate the landscape you were, you were walking through or had it gotten to a stage where it was just more putting one foot in front of the other and making sure you were staying safe as you were, you were walking? No, the, the, the landscape was certainly truly amazing and and, and we appreciated that. Even, you know, we were under duress. We were suffering. But you could not but help appreciate what we were seeing. The 360-degree views from all the mountaintops that we went to, one after the other, they're incredible. And our view of Frenchman's Cap heading in an easterly direction, in other words, looking from the west, we were looking at that for about 12 days. It was just incredible. And it's rarely seen from that direction. But we look back at Mount Sorrel, looking into the face, and, and we just couldn't believe that we got down off that mountain. So many cliffs, it was so spectacular. An interesting thing, on day eight, from the top of the engineer range, we could look back and still see Sarah Island in the far distance. So that's amazing to see that view. But it, 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 um, it dawned on us how soul-destroying that must have been for Pierce and his fellow convicts. Here they are believing they're being chased and they're at day eight and they're looking back at where they come from. So that would have been soul-destroying for them. And then we were on Mount King William uh, the the day after a snowstorm and, again, 360 degrees, but this time snow-capped mountains all around us. It was just an amazing 
vista. But yes, you're right. Regardless of that beauty, uh, and we, we did appreciate it, but it was still, as you said, one foot in front of the other. We we had no choice, no choice at all. All right. So take us through, and I, I know this is going to vary, the answer is going to vary here depending on where you were, but take us through a typical daily routine for your group. Oh, right. Okay. We had a, yeah, we had a very structured daily routine, very st- structured. We would leave camp at 8 a.m. every morning, regardless of the weather conditions, regardless of how you were feeling. Each of us had a responsibility to be ready at 8. So we had to get up at whatever time accordingly that we'd be ready by 8. How, you know, how long does it take you to pack up your tent, have your breakfast? So that's what we do. Now, then on the track, well, well, sorry, track, there was no tracks. But on our walk, so there was three men and three women. Each man would take a half-hour turn in front, forging the way through. And then that person would have a spell, an hour spell, as the other two had their half-hour in front. And the three girls, they trailed behind us. It's fair to say after each half hour in front, we were totally exhausted. Absolutely. We couldn't go on. You had to have a spell. You were done in totally. And the two men behind the leader, uh, we were always checking, or they were, you know, they were checking their, their compass and reassuring that guy up front who was doing all that hard yakka, reassuring and guiding him that, that he was heading in the right direction. Or we'd say, look, you veered a bit left, you need to go right, vice versa. So that's how we did it. Short, We had short rests whenever needed. Lunch would only be 30 minutes. And by about five o'clock of a night, uh, late afternoon, we would start studying the map very carefully. And what we were doing was looking for contours that was spaced a little bit more apart, indicating flatter ground on which we might be able to camp. But we'd also be looking for those blue blue lines on the map because we needed blue lines in the vicinity where we were going to camp. We needed water every night. So once we arrived at the campsite, the three men would go searching for water whilst the three girls erected the tents. And um, I recall on, on one occasion we we had to climb down very, very steeply for a long distance and it was so thick and hard and difficult. And we finally found some water, but all it was was like a slow dripping tap, and we just had to put up with holding our containers under this slow drip. It was terrible, but at least we got water. And tent sites were often very tight for room, so then the evening meals were very heartily cooked and straight into bed. We were so exhausted. So that was our structure, that was, and we, we stuck to that every day. All right, no, that's good. It's uh, I was gonna, I was, I was almost gonna ask you about tents there. I mean, you know, when you're when you're going up and down steep ravines and things like that, it's bad enough trying to find a space for one tent, let alone uh, multiple tents. Um, so I'm guessing you probably you probably struggled to find dead flat ground on any of the any of the days you were camping. There was a little bit of flat ground, yeah. Um, some of the nights we weren't on a mountain; we were on the mountain side. We we're actually down in the valley, and we'd find a little bit of flat ground. But look, we. We had times when the tents were basically the flies were were overlapping. In other words, yeah, we we battled to squeeze them in, and you're right, we had trouble finding sufficient room. Yeah. Okay, now how did your hike compare to your expectations prior to the trip? Oh, our expectations. Well, well, let's put it this: we could we could never ever and have anticipated how difficult it was going to be, the, the terrain and the vegetable, that is. It was considerably more difficult than 
any of our previous walks, even when we walked up the entire west coast to Hills Gates. You know, when we when the person was in front pushing through, trying to make a way through, when the next person went through that area, you wouldn't know the other person had already gone through. It just all closed in on you straight away. It was so difficult. And we couldn't ever have anticipated it was going to be that difficult. So the method to get through was to try and push on it and get it down and get through it. We couldn't – you couldn't um, – you could, we'd learned from previous walks in thick scrub, any mechanical device is no good. You can't swing it. You can't. You haven't got room to swing it to, to try and open it up. We could not have ex- expected what we were in for, what we headed into. Did you have the right gear or had, had uh, was there some shortcomings that you just couldn't plan for? Our planning eventuated that we had gear that was suitable uh, and it survived fairly well. Uh, one stove died after the first day, um, but luckily – there was a compatible stove in our team, and so that was shared. The lands, the, the, we talked about the scenery. Well, that was much more spectacular than we expected, <laughs> but there's no way we can say the same about the vegetation and the, the terrain. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> no. You cannot describe what we're in for, and you could never expect it. I was going to, that, that sort of prompted me. I, I was thinking about this at, a, at an earlier question that um, – that you're aware of, had anybody else done, not, not necessarily just Pierce's trip, but any, had anyone travelled from the west coast of Tasmania into the centre of Tasmania before as a as a hike, or is this something that, as far as you're aware, is is, is fairly unique? The the route that um, the convicts took is unique. You could, I'm sure there are people that have come from west to east to certain areas, to, you know, to finish a certain areas, but Depending on where you start is, you know, that that's going to influence what you're going to meet. And I'm, I know there's other areas where you could get through much easier. I, no one, no one's ever gone through where Pierce went. Yeah. But I'm sure in other areas where it's more open land in certain areas, yes, it would have been done. Yeah, I suppose if you you were sitting there planning a hike from uh, west to east, you'd be looking at topographic maps, working out where the the easier routes are, rather than saying, "Well, let's let's just pick the hardest place we can find to to, to walk across." Yeah, correct. Yeah, and um, there are some old tracks in other areas in that true southwest area that were originally mining tracks. There's not much left of those tracks now, but. You know, if you were if you were planning it and you could go where you wanted to go, you would use parts of those tracks where it was convenient. No, no one else would have planned to follow Pierce's route. Definitely not. All right. Now, I mean, I um, I know one of the the, the things that all people always tend to think about when they hike in Tasmania, particularly in the more rugged areas, is is the issue of snakes. Uh, did you come across many snakes, or were, were there? Were, was it much in your, your your train of thought, or was it just something you're used to hiking in those areas? Look, we're all used to the scrub. Let's put it that way. Um, so we we don't go into any scrub fearful of snakes. We know they're there, and you do the best you can. But one thing I've found with being in the bush is, uh, and particularly from Orienteering and Rogani, you're disturbing the ground, and it's believed that snakes uh, can sense when you're there through vibrations and things like that. So they're as as scared of us as we are them, I think, and they want to get out of the way mainly. Uh, But if you surprise them and step on, they'll uh, they'll give you some trouble, that's for sure. Um, But, yeah, we we encountered tiger snakes 
but they gave us no trouble. And as I said, we we were because we were pushing through such thick scrub. I'm sure they sensed our presence, and the ones we did see, they were mainly retreating. So. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, a group of six people trying to bush bash would have would have been making a lot of noise from a snake's perspective. So, as you said, they would have been probably shifting out of the way quite quickly before you even got too close to them. That's right. And um, but but mentioning snakes, yeah, we knew we were going to um, encounter them, and we'd planned in our planning, uh, we'd all agreed that if someone got bitten by a snake, that we would um, obviously press the button or use the sat phone, press the button on that PLB and that everyone else would continue on to, to try and finish this expedition. That was a given and an agreement between all of us. Yeah, that's that's probably not a bad thing to think about, is it? You know, sort of, It's not as if you can just sort of walk to the closest highway, wave a car down and sort of come back to where you started again. It's uh, You're either in or you're out, uh, and yep. you, you're having to go back to, st- you know, to start at a much earlier point uh, if, you wanna, if, you're, if you're trying to do it that way. So it's... Uh, it's good to see that you, you, I think a lot of people don't think to that extreme uh, about emergency situations. Well, having been in remote areas before and accepting that this was going to be even more remote than anything we'd ever done, we had to cover everything in our planning. And and I think the fact that we got through successfully without any serious injuries at all is evidence of that planning, and and we all accepted the, those decisions we made in the planning. So, um, no, there was no thought, no thought ever of of, of of giving up and coming back due to an injury. No, we all we all took on board and accepted that the others would push on. Okay, now I suppose a silly question here: Would you ever see yourself doing this trip again? Um, I loved the trip; totally loved it. I had thoughts at some stage that I would go back. A few years have gone on, and I'm so I'm a few years older, and I I don't think I would. Um, you know, there's other places to be seen. So no, I, I wouldn't go back now. Yeah, I must admit, I uh, I'm I'm, not, I'm a firm believer of not revisiting previous trips. I think you have a picture in your mind about what a trip was like, and I think it can it it can change the memories quite. Uh, in a bad way in some respects when you go back and thinking, well, it was a bit different last time or it's not like I, I remembered it to be. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know I missed an opportunity. The Tasmanian government called a, a public um, a public comment on Tasmania's next iconic walk. Yep. And this was prior to them building the Three Capes track down in the southeast. And I looked back on it later and I thought, well, maybe I should have put in a a uh, comment that maybe Alexander's Pierce could have become a Tasmanian iconic walk, but I missed that opportunity. I believe the, uh, the, their next iconic walk is on the west coast of Tasmania, um, and I, I'm not, not sure where, where, where it's up to, but I believe it's been approved. But uh, yeah, when it actually becomes comes online, is anybody's guess? Yes, I think the, I think it was a about a five year plan, so it's going to be done in stages, and that's down in the. Um, Sort of, uh, I think it's. Um, um, I think it's the Tarkine area, from memory, wasn't, it? or close to that that area. Uh, it's more south of the Tarkine. It's it, it'll it'll come into Queenstown to, towards its finish. Um, so Zion, that area, Zion Queenstown sort of area. Okay, that's good. So it, it, it actually it'll cross. I think it's called the Tyndall Ranges. It'll cross the Tyndall Ranges. All right. Now, just a couple of final questions to finish off. Um, 
from your perspective, and I think we, we talked about this previously, uh, you guys did this in hindsight knowing that Alexander Pierce did this you know, roughly 200 years ago. From your perspective, you know, Pierce and his, his group did this with no planning, no, no real information as such. What's your view of Pierce and his trip now that you've gone through and done it yourselves? Look, all I can say is that every member of our team earned a great respect for Alexander Pierce. And we became a bit disillusioned with how he has been portrayed. And we believe that Alexander Pierce today, he should be remembered for his, this great feat of his in, of endurance, uh, navigation, and, and, and particularly survival. Because as you say, he had no modern convenience system. They had nothing. They didn't even have shelter. And we believe that it is a, a terrible injustice that the main focus of the historians, the media and authors has been directed at the cannibalism aspect of, of his most amazing feat. And, and in saying that, we all also find it very difficult to comprehend how Pierce could have achieved travelling from Macquarie Harbour to Ouse. But we think there may have been just one saving grace that could have made it easier for him and his team, and that is that that landscape may have been burnt by the Aboriginal people because we saw evidence of fire in this area of the southwest where most people believe it's too damp and wet 365 days of the year that there would be a fire, but we saw evidence that there has been. So we hope it was a bit more open for them when they went through. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing. We we have a picture in our mind of what it looks like today or the, over the last 20 or 30 years, but you know, whether it looks different or not 200 years ago, as you say, you, you just don't know. You can only imagine what it looked like at that stage. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we we just stand in awe of their achievement. I, yeah, no, I, I I agree with you on that. It it sort of uh, it piqued my interest. I mean, as you say, because of the cannibalism aspect, it was like this is this is interesting. And then you look closer into it, and as you say, it's it's it really is a, a feat of willpower and 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 human endurance that that any of them managed to make it out alive. Um, on, on in, in an area that was just so remote and so harsh. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 Pierce was a well, obviously he was a survivor. He he was a little short man, uh, Irish. Um, he didn't talk much. He was a deep thinker, and those traits I think is what helped him actually be the last man standing. That he was a broken man when he got out. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, if somebody wanted to do this trip, uh, what would be your advice? Yeah, I would. I'd make myself available to talk to them. First of all, they would have to have a very. Their people would have to be very compatible. The team just has to work so well together. So, they've got to assemble a team of very compatible people, and they've. they've it's an absolute must. They've had off off track walking experience. They would need. I'd tell them that they'd need. In that team, they'd probably want, I reckon, three extremely experienced navigators because just let's say you've got two and one one goes down, you haven't got much experience left and that one would be on his own doing all that navigation without help. So I think they'd need three extremely experienced navigators. You're in such thick, like you're navigating in scrub that you've got about a metre's vision in front of you. So, yeah, they need to be very fit, capable of carrying heavy pack. and um, I reckon they would already have need to have experienced southwest conditions. That, that's that would be my advice to them. 
I must admit, I've, from all the hikes I've looked at around Australia and trip reports I've read, I don't think I can't, I can't imagine a more difficult trip, uh, off track track hiking trip would be, would exist than in uh, in Southwest Tasmania. No, you've summed that up correctly. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking with Paul Lefevre about his 2008 recreation of Alexander Pierce's attempted escape to freedom, a unique trip if ever there was one. Paul, thanks for taking your time to chat with Australian Hiker. Thank you very much. So from my perspective, this is probably one of the most uh, intriguing, I suppose, for want of a better term, interviews that we've done uh, in the the five years that we've been doing Australian Hiker. And I must admit, I was looking at doing this probably over a year ago. Uh, and between COVID and bushfires and everything else, it sort of just got lost a bit in the traffic. And it was only when I sort of came back to Paul and started having a chat to him and started looking at more in depth at what he'd actually done that you realise just the sheer enormity of this sort of trip. We've previously done an episode on choosing your own adventure, and I, th- I think <laughs> oh, I think in not all this honesty, one. <laughs> I think in all honesty, this is probably the ultimate adventure from an Australian hiking perspective. Uh, 170 kilometres in 23 days, and that, yeah, that doesn't sound unreasonable. You know, that's really what um, 10, uh, eight kilometres a day. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound a lot, but when uh, they get, Paul gave us an example, their their worst day was one point one kilometer. Uh, they travelled really is, in, in a ten hour day. In a ten hour day. One comment I would make here is if you go to the show notes for episode 190 of the Australian Hiker podcast, we've got a series of images that will help uh, follow along as you're listening to this episode. And one of the thing, one of the ones that's uh, that that really is telling is the elevation chart for this hike itself. So when you actually look at this graph and look at the elevation and how steep it was, um, that one point one kilometer trip up from the Franklin River almost looked vertical. Um, yeah. It's uh, it it, it yeah, and it really was a very much a, a sawtooth sort of trip, uh, and you can see why. Uh, it took uh, as long as it did, and you can see the photos of the sort of terrain they were going through. Uh, there was no trail; they were they were cutting their own trail, uh, having to push foliage and undergrowth out of the way, uh, and it, it it would have been a physically very very demanding sort of walk. Yeah, and uh, he was saying that you know the the lead person would spend thirty minutes. Uh, cutting through, uh, there, there's an image with the lead person up ahead and uh, um, somebody in between and a photo being taken and you can barely see the lead person. So the cutting through was very minimal. It was enough to just kind of get yourself through the bush and everybody else behind by the look of it had to basically keep an eye out on where they were and follow the footsteps because uh, – you'd lose them pretty quickly. Now, from Paul's perspective, he said they spent about eight months planning this trip and there was a group of six, so they were all, all contributing, all, all helping out. So it wasn't wasn't just one person spending eight months. It was six people working out what they needed to do. 
Uh, and when you do a 26-day shakedown hike, uh, <laughs> it, 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 gives you, it gives you an indication of, a bit how, of, perspective, of how it? serious it, it's going to be. Um, but I think it's, it's the sort of thing if, as I said, this is probably the most difficult hike you could possibly do in Australia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there probably are more difficult ones, but it would be in the same area. Uh, so, you know, it gives you an indication of how difficult this was. Well, it's interesting. It, it's, it was not a, a hike as we know it in any sense of the way because you were, um, you know, following a route that somebody 200 years ago had, had taken um, and essentially making your way through uh, the bush on that route. And as we mentioned through the uh, the episode itself, I mean, if you if you were planning on doing this as as a hiker, you'd sit down with a topographic map or an electronic map of some sort, and you'd work out where the easiest route is to get across there. And it's not necessarily a straight line, mm-hmm. uh, but in this instance, they were recreating the eighteen twenty two trip uh, that Alec, Alexander Pierce did. Now, from Pierce's perspective, when he and his fellow convicts escaped, they were not planning on going inland. They were planning on escaping by boat, and it's only because they'd realised that the that some, that the guard had actually managed to get a signal out uh, to warn people what had happened that they decided to go inland. Now they knew they were heading easterly because that's where they they knew they had to get to uh, a settlement area. But uh, this was a at this stage uh, this was an area where no European person had ever gone across. Uh, and it would not have been an easy sort of trip. Well, well, they wouldn't have had food. They wouldn't have had, you know, uh, proper clothing. Uh, they wouldn't have had shelter. They wouldn't have water. No, and and this is where the food aspect comes in. This Alexander Pierce is probably best known for being the cannibal convict because out of the out of the group that started off, he was the only one that survived. Um, you know, people died along the way or were killed, and uh, the bodies were eaten. So, um, looking at the history behind this, I think Pierce and his uh, uh, took a lot less time to get through this trip uh, than Paul and his his uh, compatriots did. But you know, it's the sort of thing that you know they weren't carrying twenty five uh, uh, kilo packs. But yeah, you look at the terrain. You look at the uh, how much how thick and dense the bush was. You know, it's let alone now with the comforts of modern hiking, doing this uh, with no information, no indication that all you all you're doing you're heading east. It really was uh, at that stage. It was an amazing trip. Let alone the recreation of it that they did in two thousand and eight. Yeah, and you know, for the cannibal convict, um, it was a as you said. Um a trip of endurance and pure survival. Now, Paul's comment in this episode was that Pierce was really you know, known for being the cannibal convict, but really, when you think about this, this really was a uh, a feat of human endurance that anybody could manage to do this uh, as they did, uh, even even ignoring the the way they did this. But it's it's sort the sort of thing that you know. The comment, one of the comments, was made from Pierce's perspective that no man would know what they were capable of unless they're put into that situation. 
you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, you've got no food, you know, the, uh, you're, you're probably cold, you're, an ex, you're in an exposed environment and you, know, you don't know whether you're going to live or not. Uh, and in this instance here, they opted for cannibalism to survive. Well, it's easy to judge, isn't it? It, yeah. it is, it is. I was interested to see that Paul mentioned they had a phone and a P- oh, sorry, a satellite phone and a personal locator beacon. I know beacons have been around for a number of years. Satellite phones from 13 years ago, uh, they're expensive enough these days and the call charges are expensive enough. You know, it's not the sort of thing you sit there and call your family for a half-hour chat, uh, but it's it's the sort of thing that, um, uh, you know, it, this trip was so complex and so remote you know, a satellite phone was not a luxury, it was an essential. Yeah, and that contingency of having five days of food with a, a, an air supplier and uh, having to use the phone to say, hey, <laughs> you need to drop the food uh, to us. I mean, you know, that just goes to show the extent to which the, they went to the planning and, uh, you know, the thing that they were saying that, that stuck out for me uh, was – their focus was on safety and looking after each other. But but also there was this really strong, when he was talking about the day-to-day, strong sense of structure and discipline uh, to, to what they were doing and, and everybody pulling in the, the same direction, even though he did mention that, you know, there were tears and there were some bad days that, you know, probably uh, everybody had at least once or twice, I would imagine. As Paul mentioned, you know, they were a group of six and I think, you know, I'm a big fan of solo hiking, uh, but certainly this is one of those sort of trips where having a team would have been essential. I would not allow you to do this by yourself, no. that's for sure, Tim. <laughs> so the, the whole concept of having to trailblaze and bush bash and, do, and taking it in turns to do half hour at a time and then being physically shattered at the end of that as you fell in behind somebody else, um, you know, there's no way that you could – well, I was going to say you could do this as one person, but it would be a, an extremely difficult and probably a very unsafe sort of trip to do by yourself. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, it would almost be impossible, I think. It really did, does rely on having a group of people to take it in terms, to assist, to look after each other, to get through this. Yeah, and I think that looking after each other is also support for – mental health as well. And so, you know, when you're doing these things um, alone, uh, you do start to make stories up in your head and particularly in this environment. Um, And, you know, that's the last thing you would want to do in in such a precarious situation. So, you know, doing it with others is is also part of the safety physically and, and mentally, I think. And, and this comes back to again having a more than more than a few people where you've got someone who's actually putting that attention in. You're you're essentially following behind them, and you can sort of relax mentally a bit. Uh, but yeah, trying to be you know, there's no way you could physically or mentally be leading this hike all through. You 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 do would need the break. Uh, one of the things I found interesting uh, was the mention of the possible evidence of fire. You know, when they went through, they 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 saw that there had been in a very very wet part of the country there had been uh, that evidence of fire, and uh, you know, and Paul was suggesting that um, Pierce may have, and his his 
uh, fellow escapees may have had a slightly easier run through than they did, uh, given that that part of the country would have been in- inhabited by Indigenous uh, peoples and, uh, you know, potentially they could have been um, managing the landscape uh, as they do with fire. So, you know, that's an interesting thought. I guess you would never probably know for sure, um, but that's certainly an interesting aspect to ponder. Okay, so as Paul mentions through here, um, he has offered to sort of provide advice if people are uh, keen to think about doing this sort of walk, um, but he's asked that if anyone is interested that they contact me through Australian Hiker uh, and I'll pass the, the details on if anyone is interested. As I said, go through and have a look at the show notes. There's some images uh, and the elevation uh, elevation profile and the map of the trip, uh, so as well as photos of the group itself. So you can see, uh, get a bit of an, an indication of what people were looking at and who who you were, who was actually doing the trip itself. Uh, as I said, for me, this is one of the more interesting interviews that I've done, uh, and as much as I like listening to this and talking to Paul. I don't know if I could ever ever put, uh, put myself in that situation to do it, but it's certainly a, a very unique uh, choose-your-own-adventure sort of hike. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. Uh, it's certainly, as I said, one of the favourite ones for me. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.